Kia ora Aotearoa, it is Rebecca Hollis and welcome to Rebecca Live, a show where we talk about a couple of things, commerce, culture, community, sprinkled with a bit of creativity, content and a whole bunch more. Today on the show, we have Sarah Wood. She is the CEO of realestate.co.nz. She is a brain, she is a weapon, and I'm super stoked that she's going to be joining us today to talk about property, talk about what's bubbling away with leadership, data, so much more. Strategy, comms. It's always very cool with the show. I get to literally have an executive producer who is a boss, by the way, who gets me to talk to smart, amazing, cool Kiwis doing great things. And my goal is pretty simple. I have a little wristband on it. It says learn, share, repeat. The goal of that is pretty simple. What can I learn? Who can I share it with? And how do I just keep that thing going? And I've done it for over 300 episodes now, and I'll keep doing it until the day I probably die, because I'd really enjoy, you know, getting behind the scenes and behind the curtains of some of these great brains that, you know, help Aotearoa's business circle cruise around. I get stoked that I get to talk to them, get stoked that I get to learn, and hopefully they get stoked that they have a bit of banter with me too. So if you have, uh, if you're new to the show, you can basically download the Rover app or wherever you get your podcast, search up for hashtag Rebet Live, and you can play catch up on any of the other episodes as well. I've got plenty, plenty, plenty on there too. So without further ado, here is my interview with Sarah Wood, the CEO of realestate.co.nz. For today FM, Rebet Live. Rock and roll. Kia ora, Sarah. How are you? Good morning. Good, thank you. Well, let's just jump straight into to the, the heart of things. You've just got back from Philadelphia. What were you doing in Philadelphia, Sarah? And I'm really intrigued to unpack this one because I'm super jealous you got to go. Um, I actually spent five weeks um, at Wharton, which is a business school that's part of the University of Pennsylvania. And I was doing an advanced management program, which uh, was honestly phenomenal. Um, so it's five weeks in-house. You basically, you, you live on, on campus um, and, you, you know, it, the course runs pretty much most days of the week. Um, so pretty full on, but it, it covers um, a huge range of things, um, sort of business topics, but, you know, it has a very strong uh, focus on leadership development as well. When you were a 10-year-old little kid on the come up, would you ever have thought that not only would you be the CEO of Real Estate NZ, but also be able to go to Wharton. I know. Did you ever think this was a thing? What were you thinking Look, for yourself when you were 10? Go for it. God. I was, I've got to say, as a 10-year-old, I was actually strangely ambitious. Um, I just wanted to, to, to do something or um, to, you know, to really craft my own path. So um, I was actually quite clear, even at 14, I decided what I wanted to do. And I've actually more or less stayed to that path. And, and I know that's unusual. Um, but but back in then it was actually I wanted to be in advertising and media and essentially that's what I'm doing now. I'm still you know realestate.co.nz is, is an advertising platform, so um, I've somewhat stayed in, in that path. When you were 14, yeah. the tech obviously wouldn't have been the same to do it. You, were you when you were thinking media and advertising, were you thinking newspapers or TV ads or what was the at 14? What was the thing? I'm going to make a 60 yeah. second TVC. Like what was the <laughs> you wouldn't there was so, a thing you thought. What what did you see? Yes. Yeah, so, so, look, my stepmother was in advertising. She was running radio stations, um, a network of radio stations in a part of New Zealand. And I just spent time with her and um, I just loved the vibrancy of, of what she was doing and being out and about and the, the interaction between kind of, you know, in that, in that sense, it was listeners, but also the, you know, the other side of advertisers. So I just, I, I just love the dynamic of it. Did the dynamics of 
advertising, how do you think they've changed the most since when you were 14 to now? Obviously, mm -hmm. listen to one side to the other. Do you, has the game changed as much or do you think the principles are still the same, but just the formats are, are changing and, and getting um, a bit different through yeah. tech? I, I think the principles are the same. The key thing for me that's changed would be around the personalization. So, you know, when I think about, you know, back then it was really broadcast media versus now, you know, what you can do from a personalized standpoint and how you use data to, to enhance that or, you know, how you really start to narrow that down and, and focus with a, with a consumer that's on your site or, you know, in our instance, it might be an agent that we have a relationship with. So, you know, I, I think that's what's changed. It, it just, you, you can be far more um, close to the consumer than you used to be able to be. Huh. When, when you were younger and you were learning about the media game to start with, because a lot of times people don't get to see it until they, you know, grow up, go to high school, they get they start working an internship or something else. If, you know, the family was helping run a bunch of these radio networks, I'm sure you would have understood the the balance of both sides of the table from, I guess, creative outputs and opportunities versus versus commerce, right? Was this something that was built in early on and you naturally had it as well on top of, or was it kind of all fresh in you and you sort of just like organically built, built that through? Because that skill set, not many people have probably been able to have, right? Yeah, true. Um, so, so I think there's two parts to it. I really love design and I loved the communication process. So I definitely have a strong leaning in that respect. Um, but I just, the, the idea of business was fascinating to me. And it, it always, and still does in some ways, feels like a bit of a game of monopoly because you've got competitors on the board and, and you know, and, and everyone's trying to sort of out, you know, um, you know, use strategy and, and, you know, a range of different tools to play the game. Um, so, you know, I sort of saw it in, in that way. And, you know, oddly enough, my father was actually a property valuer. So, um, and, and, you know, and now I'm in property. So property was a conversation that was at our dinner table, um, which is why I really love this job because I've, I've grown up with it. My father then ended up having a property finance business. So, um, you know, I, I understand that's understood that side of it and commerce was just what he talked about. Um, so I think those things 100% influence, um, influence who you are. But almost to the T, I mean, not many parents have the property on one side, the marketing media on the other, and then literally, ironically, years later, you are in the exact intersection <laughs> of both the things which your parents were on. Like that hardly yeah. ever happens to that, ever. No, yeah, I've got to say, it's, 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 been, a, it's been a strange, to, you know, and it's really, this is the first job where those two things have, have come in. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been funny. I mean, my father loves it because he, he loves, you know, any time that I speak, he's following what I'm doing and yeah, he's, he's right into it. He's from, well, so many, um, I think, you know, uh, Japanese culture has uh, a thing called Ikigai, which is this intersection of all these things that you're into and passionate about and then sit right in the middle sits your kind of Ikigai, your thing. You know, I, I think about um, things I, I hit across of whether it's, you know, commerce or creativity or culture or content all these kind of things that sort of sits in that bubble so anytime you hit multiple ones it kind of it becomes one plus one equal three and it's not mm. often that other people hit those same those same pockets of intersection between all those passions all at once into one like laser focused thing which then they can go deep on which is very mm. rare you know like do you do you take it for granted or are you quite self-aware to realize that that intersection of passion literally not many other people actually get in a lifetime even for some yeah I, I think I'm um I, I do really appreciate it and um you know for me the the passion I think is very tied to design creating and making things and I'm sort of quite clear ar around that like I love commerce 
Um, but I love, you know, a role that has both of those things. And, you know, working on a platform business, you get to be able to work on the actual product and recreate the product and the experience for a consumer. Um, and that, you know, a lot of those things are very tied to those original principles around um, advertising and, and, and how you make that connection. So um, I've come to be very clear that that's actually, you know, that is one of my sweet spots in terms of what I really love doing and actually what I'm inherently really good at. It gets, um, I was at a Singularity university a little bit ago and they had the guy that does um flows all about flow state and, and stuff mm -hmm. and sometimes when you get you know into the you know when i used yeah. to snowboard or whatever you can just get in the flipping zone and everything just blocks out and you just go in there do you find yourself because you obviously living and breathing what you're loving to do do you find yourself just getting into flow state for just hours at a time doing things just and it's just instant i i know i do know what you mean and, and yes um absolutely when it's um it has to be in a certain area, I guess, but yeah, I absolutely do. Um, particularly when it's in the process of, um, you know, creation, whether it's, um, it's, you know, whether it's creating strategic plans that you can then see how they're going to come together or actually whether it's, it's spending time with the team and the work that they've done um, and, you know, getting things right. Um, so, I, you know, in terms of a design and an execution standpoint. So, no, I do really love that. And I, I you know, we had an experience of, um, flow in a different way when I was at Wharton, they did this exercise where um, we, they put us into teams, so we didn't know each other because um, we were relatively new there. And they put us into teams and they um, taught us to row as a group. Um, and then we had to row down the Schuylkill River as a group. Um, I was the leader of my team and then you had to race each other. So a very, very compact amount of time. Um, but what the, the aim of it was, was really around um, you know, teaching everyone that if you work as one group and work in unison, that you can actually hit that flow, which we actually did, which was incredible. Like I, I found it quite challenging. Um, and certainly when we were racing, you know, these other boats of other people, which uh, were in the group, um, but our team did hit that moment of flow, which was about staying quite, I've never rowed before, uh, not in a group, you know, to get sort of eight people in unison on a boat. Um, to then win a race in a pretty short three-hour turnaround it's, it was an incredible experience. But, you know, that moment, we actually all experienced that moment of flow of rowing together and what that um, what that enabled us to do, which was we actually we won. We were slower in terms of our um, speed of rowing, but the perfection got us into the flow and we, we won. That's so, that is so cool. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the, the only one from my side where, you know, if you go heliboarding with a couple of buddies and you're at the top, helicopter goes off and it's just all part of you and, and you all just go together and then you kind of sink into each other's lines and you can cross over and it just becomes this like this whole whole thing. Yeah. Not even many people will like get into that type of stuff too. But I'll, when you're talking about the team thing before, Sarah, I was interested to know, you obviously feel like you take on a lot of data, you construct in your head and is a big part for you when you get in these flow states is it kind of you trying to deconstruct the strategy of what you think the answers could be in your head like do you kind of mind map these things out and the more data that comes in you kind of like play your own little game of monopoly with with products and like problems and opportunities is that kind of how you do it so 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 one thing that someone said to me a while ago which is the process of creation is actually quite messy and being prepared to to actually 
be a bit messy about it, which is start quite wide and, and then look at how you um, look at how you narrow those things down. Um, but but yeah, it, it is, you know, part of it is you sort of explore down one angle and you go, actually, does this make sense? You do commercials on it and actually, no, it doesn't. So you, so you change direction. Um, you know, one thing that I, you know, found really useful at Wharton was, you know, they, they taught us around processes to take that, you know, the volume of ideas and actually how do you really narrow those down? And then how do you actually put those through a model, um, a financial model um, to actually to, to work out what are the right things to be chasing. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting. The, the way that I do, have been doing it historically um, involves my team and it's, you know, going through, mapping things out, looking at opportunities, looking at data, looking at information, narrowing it down and then coming back, but actually allowing time to, um, to revisit, you know, to spend time on strategy, time to think about it and then to come back. You know, when I worked in the US, um, so I was there for seven years, you know, they when they, they they really spent time on strategy um, in a way that you know I I haven't seen in New Zealand in the same way. We would spend time talking about things, coming back, reflecting, um, putting information up. They would map it up all over the wall, and we would sit there and discuss it, discuss it, and, and then leave it, and then come back to it. Um, so you know, I, I've learned quite a lot in, in that space, particularly from the Americans, because I think they do it really well. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole bunch in there. I'm. Um... If there was a tweet of how you would process that formula to filter ideas and opportunities at the C-suite into prioritization of what you could do next, what would that tweet sound like with what that formula looks like to use as a filter for those opportunities? What would that be? I guess for me, the key thing would be very being very clear about what your overarching purpose and goal was. So if you can do, if you can get really crystallized around purpose and then the goal that sits underneath that, then then the um, then as you're measuring those things back against that, then then you've you've got you've got a tighter framework to measure that. And my experience would be when um, you know because there's lots of ideas right and lots of ideas around innovation just just generally in any business, but it's working out you know what are the ones that are actually going to make the difference to the business and make the difference to the consumers because ultimately you know those are the ones that are powering your business so it's 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 something in that something in that dynamic is it kind of like a that that idea of the purpose behind the opportunity that is an instant filter because it because it becomes that thing of similar to you know just because you can Chris Rock had this joke, you know, just because you can drive your car with your feet, it doesn't make, make it a good idea, right? <laughs> just because you can do it doesn't mean, mean, mean you should. But it, it's almost like I, I, th I just wrote down like authentic mirror to it because if it's, yeah. yeah, you could do it, but if it's not aligned with the purpose of what you're there to do, why are you flipping doing it, right? Just like, just because you can doesn't mean you should. It's, a, it's actually a pretty simple, but probably powerful thing, because which brings you probably to the next point, Sarah, which would be, I'm imagining not what percentage of businesses do you actually think know what the actual purpose is oh i don't know if i can answer that one um look i i think I, you over, know, under, I would, over under over under <laughs> i think um you know i, I think that the, the challenge is to be really clear in that space um and to be really disciplined and, and the other thing is you know new zealand New Zealand businesses are smaller, right? So you've got people that are doing multiple roles where you wouldn't have that in the same organisation overseas. Um, and, and I think there's a tendency to try and do lots of things. Um, but I think um, you've got to be really disciplined around 
doing things, doing them well, and working out what those sort of key things are. Um, so yeah, that would be another thing that I took back from the Wharton exercise, which is really around, you know, just that sort of fo absolute focus, single-minded focus on what you're trying to do that drives back up into your purpose that's going to deliver deliver back to your objectives as a business. So um, look, like I said, it's a really it's a really interesting space, um, and it's very business dependent. So it's it's a great PR soundbite there, um, Sarah. But do you think it's over or under fifty percent that businesses well, don't know what their purpose is? Oh, I really don't know. Um, what I'd say is I think that over fifty percent of businesses probably know what their purpose is, but are they articulating that clearly through their organisation in a way that people understand it, can get on board, buy into it? and it becomes how the organization runs. Mm. So th there was a, um, uh, I went to, there was a um, event, it was Asia 21 Society in San Fran and uh, Mitchell Pham and Nikuranaropo I went along with and I, I got snuck in as the media guy, but basically I was just fully learning. And it had a guy there that was at the table, he'd worked for um, Steve Jobs and, um, that for 30 years mm -hmm. at Apple and he was at the table of six when they came up with the iPod. And the articulation that they came down to at the end of it was a thousand songs in your pocket. That was the, that was the tweet. So the receptionist, the CEO, employee one to a thousand, everyone knew this product, a thousand songs in your pocket. If it can't do a thousand songs, stuff it, whatever. And it became a simple word phrase, which everyone, regardless what part of the business you're in, knew the goal, knew the mission, knew exactly what they were there for. And if anything that came in that wasn't, a thousand songs are in your pocket, piss off. I don't want to talk to you. A thousand songs in your pocket, piss off. And yeah. I thought it was really powerful, the simplicity of it, because I kind of call this like a bit of the Southern cross. The way I, my brain saw it was, you know, if the, is the receptionist at the bottom of the sea at the top is south to north and employee one to employee a thousand was west, west to east or east to west. Um, you've got this framework of, you know, if that tweet was for your organization of what its mission was there to do, could you actually do that in a tweet? And so many businesses probably even have, they potentially could, but probably to your point, Sarah, is they probably have, they haven't articulated it well enough or even what probably seems to happen more is the C-suite will know what it is and they've got their 50-page PDFs in a nice little doc that's put into the, the little cubby or whatever, but it's not actually shared openly and, and simplified down to everyday speak, which the rest of the organization can actually do. So maybe that is a nice little segue. The best leaders that you've seen and the best businesses that you've seen run, how do they do that better so more of the company actually engages with its purpose, with what it's trying to do? Like what are some of the little hacks or things you've seen or, or, or ways that you've really seen businesses get more galvanized around alignment of purpose? I, I think the best example that I've honestly ever seen was um, when I worked for GS1 US um, and you know the the company president there he was just incredibly clear and you know the strategy work that was done to really articulate that clearly and um you know it, look he, he is was absolutely phenomenal i think um and the way that he how the way that he drove that through the organization in terms of you know he literally had a printed booklet you know and he went through with every staff member he traveled around the country you know, and you go. That's that's a huge amount of a huge amount of work. But you know, to really put that into a working forum, um, I think that was really inspirational. And you know, everyone was very very clear um, on what the organisation was doing and where it was going. And I think that was that that would be one of um, 
probably one of my favorite personal examples where I can see that. You know, I think the more that you can communicate with your um, own team and how you can roll it into everything that you do, um, I think is really critical. And I know for us, you know, we we roll, um, uh, you know, we, we put a lot of our information um, across working documents with our teams, and and we, but we talk about it, um, and we are an organisation that's really focused on on those things. So um, yeah, I, to, to be honest, I think you know it's one of the the really you know one of the key things a CEO can do is to really drive that understanding, but to galvanise people, but also to get people excited about it. Right? It's about how do you really um, generate the energy off the back of it as well. Who's the best? The, um, what was that person's name? The the president you were, you were talking about. What's his name? Uh, um, Bob Carpenter. Bob Carpenter. Quite yeah, Carpenter. Who have been? Was he the best? Who who did you learn the most from in in the real world? Seen seen leadership in action that was the most impressive. So he's obviously one. Anyone else? Um, the, the other one that I uh, the, the both of them are actually Americans. The, the other one um, is a guy called Christopher Bailey. And um, he was phenomenal. He ran um, a very, very good business. But you know, he, it was really the thing that stuck out for me about him was his ability to connect with his team um, was was just amazing. The way the relationships he had, the loyalty, the tenure in his business was, was enormous, and the you know the work that people would go above and beyond to, to work alongside him. Um, but it was it was really in how he he sort of how he. Um, you know, how he managed people's expertise and their ideas and that whole process. So, you know, he would never, um, you know, if he didn't agree with you, he would just, you know, very, very, you know, very, um, just very, I don't know, um, I want to say politely, but just had a really lovely way of um, of showing you another aspect to it. Um, so, yeah, but he, he's another one that to me just really, really stands out. Well, yeah, I was thinking, you know, if you get your, your dad on the property on this side and your mum doing the media, they find an in intersection. But, you you know, over the time as you're sort of coming through, just watching different parts of, you know, like the EQ for a leader over here with how they navigate, you know, tension internally or a bit of IQ over here with how they're doing these things. I, I find, you know, I'm, I'm 37 now, but, you know, I've been able to meet a lot of people and, and, and go and see and, and do stuff. But I notice the exact same thing. I'll find like snippets of like little slithers of something of, of greatness within the way someone does something, the way they will communicate or the way they'll, you know, and these little sort of things, which eventually hopefully make you, you know, if you're self-aware enough, obviously a, a better leader. <laughs> but I, I was going to, sorry, what were you going to say? No, 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 I completely agree with you. And I think part of it is you, you just, you start to develop your own style of learning from other people and then going, you know, how does this apply to me? But you have to have a really clear understanding of who you are to be able to roll those things in to make them make sense. Yeah. So I completely agree with you. The, the um that balance right I, I'm I always get intrigued when there's a mix of creativity that has tension a healthy tension between commerce if you think of you now um, you know Sarah would 2022 2023 what percentage of of you is commercial versus creative and what's that tension actually like? It's a very good question. Um, let me think about it. So I, I would say, um, so I, I would say creativity is probably in the sort of twenty to thirty percent. Um, but but for me, creative creativity isn't isn't coming up with new marketing campaigns. Creativity is that, but it's actually your ability to solve problems, think creatively around how to solve problems. 
So there's while there's a big commercial element, you know, the tension and the creativity is really around is actually creative thinking is the way that I see it, as well as um, you know, creative. How, how does what does the experience look like for a consumer? What does what does design look like? Um, so yeah, I, I think it's something in that in that mix. Um, but you know, I really drive try and drive innovation and creativity within the team, and it's around. Um, really getting everyone to think about how to solve problems or how to how to make the business better, how to make the experience better for a consumer. Um, but really, uh, you know, it's something that's driven as part of our culture as well. It's funny, the majority of the time, you know, I ask a lot of CEOs with where their bandwidth get, goes, and it feels like 80% is people, 20% is usually product. You know, and, it's, and regardless what they're doing, how they're doing it, whatever, it could be, you know, doing rocket ships or this or media tech or whatever the, the thing may be, yeah. it always keeps coming back down to that. So in, in this idea of leadership, do you think that, you know, as as more and more data gets, you know, um, democratizes access for every dashboards or widgets and, you know, data, data, data is everywhere. Do you think the superpower of the future leaders is going to become even more emotional on the EQ side for understanding the people element to do it better, not just the IQ? Like, do you think there's a shift that's happening, even though tech and data is becoming more and more, do you actually think the soul of the people still is going to have that, that balance off? Like, how do you see that playing out in terms of leadership in the next, say, 10, 20 years? So it's a really great question. And, you know, it was talked about a little bit um, at, at Wharton as well, because they really focused on, you know, what what is what is the skill set of a modern CEO? And, um, you know, you know, and it was very focused on um, the people, the ability to lead, um, the ability to really get the best of the people around you, um, but also the ability to see opportunity. Um, so So going back to you know, back to purpose, you know, the ability to see that maybe the company that you're running needs to divest out of, of, of industries or sectors that it's actually, it's not true to its purpose and it's not going to serve um, it or its shareholders long term. So, you know, I think that um, people's a big part of it, but I think, you know, that real breadth of thinking around how to navigate um, navigate through um, different sort of competitive markets and commercial times is, is going to be really critical. But they, they, they did very much talk about that role of um, a, a leader, the role of being visionary and being very, very clear about, you know, where you want to take a company and actually how you do that in practice. Mm. And then also sometimes it can just be the actions of what they do is is the message itself because then that creates its own communication piece of, of how talk people are talking about it with what that framework is. So I mm. want to um, jump, Sarah, you know, you talk about strategy a, a little bit and then you'd said, you know, there's... A, um, this idea of you know you were talking about i guess americans using strategy more or having more processes in place or, or actively more engaged with this, with this idea of strategy for for those that aren't aware how would you describe the difference between the i guess the american approach to new zealand approach of i guess strategic thinking within organizations or businesses or being future focused or whatever because you know living in silicon valley i know exactly what you're talking about and yeah. sometimes it feels like new zealand just like you know just get in the machine copy paste kick, 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 and they're just in the engine instead of yeah. stopping and, and it, it's it feels like it's a lot more um it's, it's a lot more deliberate. deliberate yeah deliberate yeah. deliberate so yeah talk, talk to me about that because i'm yeah interested yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think that it's that they're deliberate around where the organization sits. So they're, they're mapping the organization against um, different criteria and they're very clear around where the different horizons are that they want to get to. And they make very deliberate, from my experience, 
and certainly, you know, my most recent five weeks is just just reinforces for, for me, you know, talking with um, different people that are on course, you know, they're making decisions around where they want to strategically move within a market um, and, and the sort of decisions that they make um, in order to, to make that happen again, it'll always back up to, to, to sort of what the organisational vision and purpose is. So um, I think it's in that space. I also think in New Zealand, you know, our companies are, we're just not as well resourced, we're smaller. And so people are, you know, they're very focused in execution um, and, and, get, and, and the doing elements. And I think that, you know, that the key thing that I would say is just, you know, taking the time with your team to, to work through strategy and, um, you know, and taking t the time to, to, to really filter ideas from a range of places. So it's, it's that sort of process of how do you bring that together um, and how do you, you know, how do you feed all that back up and have a clear direction? But, but I, I, I think it's a resource, I think it's just a resource difference. So on that, I was just wondering this, obviously in the States, everything's literally a hundred times bigger than New Zealand. Do you think we're not as advanced on strategy because we fight the tension of we don't have the scalability so you almost not don't need to because it's a smaller market but do you think because we don't have a scaled market with most of the products and services here we don't proactively prioritize more strategic time because the market isn't a hundred times bigger as it potentially is in the states so do you think that's like a blind little gap that maybe kiwis have yeah. Uh, potentially, because the Americans, com American companies, you know, their their options to buy and to merge and to partner are, are endless. Where in New Zealand, it's relatively small. Mm. Um, but, but I still want to, you know, personally, you know, I still want to bring my own team back to, you know, what are we trying to achieve? Like, let's just go back. Is it on strategy? Is it not? And and it's just that every, you know, that sort of discipline um, put into the business. I think, you know, make sure that we stay focused on the things that are going to make a difference to what we're trying to do. Um, so, so that would, I guess, would be my key outtake. The Americans, one hundred percent, you know, they 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 talk about strategy. Uh, in, in my experience, at, at length, um, but you know, yeah, well, they're Americans, Sarah. That's, they're Americans. That's what that's what they do. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so I I, I just think it's um, we can incorporate more of it in the way that we work with our teams as well. It's always that. Um, you know, like I, I play chess and I always talk think about chestnut checkers and, you know, people say going to 30,000 feet and zooming out and, 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 yeah. and all that. But I definitely think when you're in a, such a physically bigger market and you think of, you know, 100% of the New Zealand market is 1% of the American market, um, I think the mindset feels, especially if you are, if you are not in a tech-based business, especially now through COVID and stuff when you realise it's more of a global marketplace, maybe you, you're you organically kind of built to think that the – the blinders are on organically a little bit because all those other factors in the environment aren't actually even getting in because you probably don't even know they exist, which is why you know you don't travel in as much, whatever, right? So, so what I'd say is when I was when I worked in the US, you know, we weren't so constrained by budgets, right? So we would think as wide as we wanted to think, and we were encouraged to think as wide as we wanted to think. Um, and I think that the challenge here, and I, you know, and I've seen it myself, is around you think within the constraints of what you you've got. And, you know, I try with my own team to say, like, almost, I would say, don't worry about the money, but 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 just park all of that for the moment and actually get really clear on what the opportunity could be and then we'll work backwards. And, you know, that was a discipline that we, we had um, where, you know, it's harder when you've got, you've got less resources or, or, or whatever to go, I want to think this way because I can't achieve it. But I, I think there is a balance in there somewhere where you want to keep the, the thinking wide so that you capture all the ideas and the opportunities and then actually work out 
how you commercialize them or how you make those things happen or, or again how you choose maybe you choose one thing um, but you do it really really well well, that brings you straight into the point, Sarah, around the number eight wide mentality, which we use so much as the asset of, oh, we've got the number eight wide, we're creative, this and that. Well, actually, that potentially could just be a byproduct of the liability of us not thinking wider to start with because we only think about what we're constrained within. So the creativity gets limited to like, you know, this MacGyver thing I've got. I've got this one little thing here and there. I'm going to patch it all together opposed yeah. to more of the, 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 the wider part. But there is, it definitely feels that there is a mental mental differentiation with how Kiwi, a lot of the Kiwi business owners will think about these type of things compared to American. And I just wonder, you know, it's, it's this combo of you've got the, the zoom out, you've got the scale, you've got the size, you've got the, you know, all these other things that sort of build into it. So when you, you were saying at the start, Sarah, you were, was it the word strangely ambitious, I think is what, what, you, what you used. Would you still say, yeah, as a 10 year old, would you still yeah. say that y you are strangely ambitious now? Or do you feel you're like, how would you describe yourself? If you're strangely ambitious then, yeah. how would you describe yourself now? Um, I would say I'm, I'm more, um, I'm more settled into my path and direction. Like I'm really thrilled with how my career has gone and what I've learned. And for me, it's always about, it's about learning and developing and about learning new things. Um, and so, you know, I think, um, I'm, you know, in, in terms of my career, um, you know, I've, I've had some really incredible opportunity. I've worked, some, worked with and for some amazing people. Um, and I'm always, you know, I'm always looking around me to, 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 to see who that, you know, who's around me that I could learn from. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that um, that's sort of a path that will continue forever. Um, but yes, still ambitious, obviously, in terms of the way that I operate. Um, I just wouldn't say I'm strangely ambitious. Got it. Well, now when you look at the the marketplace and you look at the 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 headspace you're in right now with the industry around you know property real estate economy nz when you think of new zealand today in terms of all this landscape what do you think mm -hmm. the biggest shift has been in the last 10 years and then where do you th do you think that will continue or not continue that for the next 10. give us the macro of the last decade Okay, for for real estate. Yeah, and okay. New Zealand, New Zealand specific, because obviously you know we follow a lot of the rest of it. But New Zealand as yeah. a macro, how, how do you currently read it? Um, look, so I think from a from a, like a property standpoint, you know, I think um, we've gone through some quite interesting changes. So we we um, post GFC, there was a lot of building that basically halted, um, and that impacted the stock levels that were in New Zealand. You know, and you look at, um, you know, I think it was last year, you know, the consents were now back up to the, sort of the levels of the 1970s in terms of council consents. So, you know, you, you had building, then it sort of it tailed off. GFC really put a lot of people off. Um, so there was a reduction. And then that, that build up um, again has, has been, um, it's just taken, has taken time. Um, so I think New Zealand, you know, when you look at number of homes for sale, you know, this year on our site, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of say approximately, you know, mid, mid, middle of the year, maybe we had sort of 25,000 homes for sale. The year prior, you know, we had 12 and a half and the, um, you know, and that was really a reflection of all these Kiwis coming back and the stock just wasn't there because it was selling over so quickly. So, you know, I think that New Zealand has had a, um, a housing property shortage. 
I said, you've got COVID that's that's brought a whole lot of um, people back into the country and people buying back up again. Um, but it's going to be really interesting to see where it sort of levels out. You know, and I think, you know, New Zealand has gone through a transformation in terms of the types of properties that it's building and creating. So, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't be buying a duplex. It just wouldn't be something you'd buy. But, you know, you look at Hobsonville Point Development now, and actually, you know, that sort of way of living has now become into the way that New Zealanders live. And so there's been lots of really positive changes in that respect. Um, so, you know, I think one of the challenges we've got at the moment is really around the interest rates and to see where they land. You know, and America's the same. I, I spoke with a real estate agent when I was in Philadelphia, and, you know, they've gone from signing, you know, 30-year mortgage rates at 3.35, 30 years, I mean, you just can't get a rate in New Zealand for 30 years, um, to now, you know, those rates are now close to 7%. So, you know, their industry is going to be completely choked and that people, even if they want to move, they won't because they can't afford to go from a 3.35 rate or 3% rate to a 7%, um, even with the upgrade of the home. So it, it's going to be quite interesting how it all sort of evolves. And, and I, and, you know, and I think... Um, I think New Zealand's very well placed and that it's a really beautiful, it's a beautiful country um, and it's got so many things going for it that, you know, we'll have some great positive net migration and growth um, as well. So it'll be interesting to see how, how, how it shakes out. Now, do you feel like what, what would something be in the world of real estate? The, the average Kiwi wouldn't know. Like what's something about real estate that, you know, Johnny Oldmate that's listening now and he's he's into it and but he doesn't actually, you know, realise the world that exists behind the scenes, whatever. What's something about real estate that they potentially would have no idea about? Um I mean one thing I'd say is really around the I mean we talk about the, the growth of property prices. Um, and, you know, but I will say that those growth, that growth of those property prices over a 10 year period are enormous. You know, they, you're looking at areas where they're completely doubled. There are some markets where, um, like Christchurch, for example, post the earthquakes, where they, um, they, they freed up a whole lot of zoning. And so you had a flood of building and, and um, that happened down there. And then the growth of the, the prices in that market were slower over time. Um, but now they're in a, you know, in a much more accelerated sort of phase. So, you know, I think there is um, a real lack of understanding around the data. And that's what I would say, you know, when you're looking at property as a long-term investment, um, you know, really, you know, access the information. You can go on to the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand, which is Ryan's website, and you can access um, statistical information um, and data around your area um, to see the growth in the sale price, the volumes. Um, there's so much information there. So I, I would say to, the, to, to New Zealanders, it's, you know, really, when you're in that journey, um, you know, Ask people around you, you know, you really get a support network of people that know and, you know, read up and get information um, so that you can enter that process in a really well-educated space. So on that point of data, I, 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 you're definitely right that you can basically get anything about anything. If you're new to the, the world of real estate, you are looking at houses, you understand these numbers, you just, everything seems to just go up, it's kind of crazy and I can't afford much, whatever it may be. What are some of the key parts of, you know, the key bits of data which people should look for when they're thinking about researching different areas or whatever, like where should they, what's some, I guess, starting points for some beginners that are probably the most critical so they don't get overwhelmed with all the stuff and just focus on the key things that they actually should should be thinking about? Um, look, look, I mean, this is, um, 
and I'm, you know, a slight plug for our own site, but if you go on uh, onto our site, you can actually search by suburb and it gives you that, that data set and you can, um, so you can actually see it over a 10 year period. You can see sale price and average asking price. And I think that gives you a really good idea. And, and what I would say is, you know, look at the suburbs around, around those suburbs that you're looking at, but find a really trusted agent. And, you know, that would be my key thing is, is the, yep, there's a whole lot of data there, but also find a, the trusted agent that can it can help you understand it and put it into context um, in terms of what's happening specifically in the market and the type of home that you're wanting to buy. Because you can, you can look at data, but you've got to really be really clear around what is the data that sits around the type of home or the size of home, the location of the home that I'm trying to buy. Now, in, I agree to the point on the, the agent side of things. This is probably another one. There's thousands of agents out there. Everyone wants to sell a house. They've got all this sort of stuff bubbling away. You know, when you think about trust for agents, what, what does that equate to? What does trust mean for you? Is it the most they've sold? Is it the more they're seen? Is it the, the yeah. because their mates recommended them? Like, where does your brain go to when, it, when you hear the word trust an agent? Yeah. So for me, I think it really comes down to the relationships. So, you know, it's actually going to lots of open homes and really understanding what's happening in your local market, but really talking to the agent, it'll become really clear to you, you know, the agents that, that want to help you on that journey. And, you know, property buying, um, you know, there is, there is a huge amount of information and there's a trust element to it. Um, and it's really around finding someone that you trust in that, in that mix um, that you can actually create a good working relationship with because it's an incredibly important decision and a very stressful decision to be buying and selling. So, um, so it's something in that, in that respect. And I think about my own property journey. You know, um, we just found somebody who, um, you know, was really happy to spend the time with us to explain, the, the, answer the questions that we specifically had. Um, and that was who we ended up choosing as an agent. Um, but everyone has a different method. And, um, but for me, you know, this way that I work, I'm, I'm very relationship focused. So it was, it was around, um, you know, someone that I could have a good working relationship with. Uh, I was golfing with a buddy yesterday. He lives in a pretty fancy part of, um, of San Francisco and, and the group behind us was his, uh, funny enough, his, his actual real estate agent and, and, um, they got talking about it and blah, blah, blah. They're like, oh, yeah, she's literally done like over $100 million in this last year. She's done like our whole street and yada, yada. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And he's like, yeah, yeah. like she she is the the plug for this whole area. Like everyone just knows her and blah, blah, blah. And so she'd been doing it for years. But exactly at that point, the, the amount of like context within every single thing that builds brand and builds trust, and they're telling everyone else about it. And a lot of times, especially on the from the agent side, when they think transactional and not relationship, that usually becomes a quick churn and burn without actual depth of those those trusted things which can build over time, um, and I'm sure that it definitely pays up for those that are playing um, you know chess not checkers. So you, um, Sarah, before we go, I'm interested to to wonder every time someone has you know pretty busy job and they get the time and all the rest of it, where do you unwind and reset and relax? Like wh what do you do and how do you you know, keep the balance of, of the chi so you don't just go blow off and go crazy. What do you, what do you do? Um, look, I will say that I really do, and my husband will, will laugh at this, but I do value um, peace and quiet and some silence uh, in, in the mix of, of the busyness. Um, what, like so, meditation or literally just like not talking to anyone? <laughs> just getting away and having that peace and quiet. So this morning, you know, I, I was up early um, and I took my dog for a walk, and we were sat on top of a, on top of a, you know, of a, of a 
pretty decent um, hill um, near us. And, you know, it's that moment of um, just letting all the noise fall away and um, and giving that time for, to think and, and reflection and to be really clear. Um, you know, I think, you know, we have three children, so, you know, we, run, we have a pretty busy life. Um, and, you know, one thing that I'm very clear about is when I'm home, um, you know, we sit down as a family and have dinner together. You know, those things are really, really important to us. Um, and But we're also really, you know, in the kind of work that I do and the time commitment for it, um, really happy to, to have help to, to make sure that, you know, we've got... Um, we've got the right levels of support so that we, you know, I'm not, you know, up at 10 o'clock at night folding washing, um, you know, that, that actually, while I do fold my own washing, um, you know, we've got help that actually helps just manage the household and, and, and make sure that the kids are prioritised and their time with us and their needs are prioritised. And that's, that's really important. So do you, technical question, do you colour code your calendar to block out solo time for yourself each week? I, it's a good question. No, I don't. But huh. um, but post my time away, um, I've you know the professors have really challenged us to um, to take the changes of five weeks basically and, and and to come back and to not let the gravitational forces of our lives pull back. Um, I do color code my calendar very. I, I'm a I'm a big user of. Um, of of OneNote and and working out of my calendar and I will block in time in my calendar for thinking and um, but I don't block yeah. it out of my own personal calendar. So do you um, what are your colour code is like yellow for admin, red for money generating activity, green for personal? Like what's your what's your colours? Yeah. Yellow is my kids. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah yellow is my kids. And do you I know just I, I love getting into the OCD of it. Yeah. Do you then go to a weekly view and then look at the time schedule of where your energy is actually going within your life do you do that as well no i haven't done but one thing that i'm going to my, my new habit that i want to pick up is um and like i'm only second day back at work haven't been away is to um really focus every morning and prioritize out what are the two or three key priorities in my work life that i want to focus on that day so yes i've got meetings there's always things happening but get really, really um, clear around those focus areas, um, and also make sure I've got the right amount of time to be doing reading and research and and all of those things, and not getting caught up with the business of, of the week. But I am pretty structured in the way that I run my time. Um, but I intend to get just slightly more structured, particularly in my own personal time around like how to actually block out that time. Um, for me, honestly. Time walking around the neighbourhood um, is just, it sounds silly, but it's just so valuable and it gives me complete silence. It's me and my puppy and, you know, I can, I can really think through a whole range of things around around um, my time and, and, and what the week looks like or what the day looks like. I've tracked when I've got ideas and stuff down and creativity for me is never in an office. It's always physically doing something else where you're out and about and, and whatever, whether it be driving and, and stuff too. Um, I really appreciate you, um, Tom. No doubt you've got many things to get back to after five weeks away, and I'm sure you've got a jam-packed calendar that's going to be colour-quoted to know all of it, but don't forget yeah. the yellow. Don't, definitely don't forget the yellow. Um, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us, and best of luck with everything, Sarah. Super cool. All right. Thank you so much. Awesome. How good was that? What a weapon. Stoked that she could join us. Sarah Wood, the CEO of realestate.co.nz.
So the data that she was talking about, if you're looking to get into it, go to realestate.co.nz, search up. And this isn't a sponsored plug, by the way, either. She didn't pay me to say this. No one can pay me to say these things. I was just want to tell you. Uh, you can go to uh, realestate.co.nz, look up the suburbs, and check out those 10-year history, which she was talking about. And if you are in the market for it, you know, what she was talking about agents, try to find someone that's going for the relationship, not the transaction. Try and find someone that genuinely cares about you and your unique individual circumstance, not just trying to just get the thing out the door so they can clip the ticket and be on to the next. That is not what it's about. Super cool as well, hearing about um, Wharton Business School, obviously a very smart business school. Um, thing about strategy, zooming out, this tension between scale and size and strategy with this new number eight wide mentality in New Zealand. Um, and I also thought it was super cool around the idea of being, you know, just strangely ambitious. So whatever you're into, wherever you're at, you know, if you were to be a bit more strangely ambitious, what would that look like? What could that future look like? And then when you're, you know, prioritizing your time, if you put an authentic mirror up to you and the organization or the business, what is that, is your, are your priorities actually what it should be? Are they prioritizing the right way to go do the big thing that actually is the most important for your organization or your business? That is something to be thinking about, the authentic mirror for you and your business. Uh, don't forget you can download a lot more of the different apps here for uh, Repeat Live. Um, basically, you go on Spotify, you download the Rover app, and you can listen to plenty of the previous episodes featuring a whole bunch of amazing Kiwis that are doing really cool stuff to make Aotearoa even better. I hope you have an awesome day, team. Enjoy the rest of the week. Be good, be great, and keep keeping it rural. See you soon, team. Peace.